Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leith and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. In today's podcast, I interviewed Jason Kander, who's a former army captain who served in Afghanistan. He was elected to the Missouri State Legislature in 2008 and as Missouri Secretary of State in 2012. He's the president of the Veterans Community Project, a national nonprofit organization and host of Majority 54, a popular political podcast. In 2017, President Obama, in his final Oval Office interview, was asked who gave him hope for the future of the country, and Jason Kander was the first name he mentioned. Suddenly, Jason was a national figure. As observers assumed he was preparing to run for the presidency, he announced his birth for the mayor of Kansas City, and he was headed for a landslide victory. But after 11 years of battling PTSD from his service in Afghanistan, Jason was seized by depression and suicidal thoughts. He dropped out of the mayor's race and out of public life, and finally he sought help. And in this podcast, we dive into that. What does it mean? What does it look like to seek help for PTSD? And, in, and we discuss some really important points and tips on how one can handle and deal with PTSD and heal from the challenges of PTSD. Life can be hard and it's easy to feel stressed, anxious and out of control. What if there was a way to take back control? What if there was a practical way to detox your brain? This is now possible with NeuroCycle, the first ever scientifically tested brain detox app shown to help reduce anxiety and depression by up to 81%. Users are guided through a variation of audio and video, brain exercises and mind management lessons every day. I'm excited to share some of the latest features in the app, including guides for children and parents, detailed feedback and recommendations, written guides through days 22 through 63 of the NeuroCycle, and an easy way to track your progress. There are over 500,000 NeuroCycle users worldwide, and the app has helped change thousands of lives, including people trying to find purpose in life, overcoming fear, better sleep, improved relationships, managing intrusive thoughts, depression and anxiety, and so much more. NeuroCycle is for everybody. No matter who you are, what you've been through, what you do, you have an incredible mind and brain that is always on and needs to be managed so that you can live your best both mentally and physically. This app is designed for individuals, couples, families, businesses or corporations, for everyone, everywhere. Join us by committing just a few minutes a day and see how your life is transformed. In just 63 days, you will have begun rewiring your brain for a happier and healthier life. Download the NeuroCycle app today and start changing your life one thought at a time. Just look for NeuroCycle on the iTunes App Store or Google Play or visit NeuroCycle.app. The link and more information will be in the show notes. Jason, I am so honored and privileged to have you on my podcast. Your story is incredible. I have your book, Invisible Storm, a Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD. Being in the field that I've been in for 38 years now, this is a topic that isn't, isn't addressed sufficiently and in the right way enough, and especially when it comes to people returning from duty. I'm going to start very quickly after you've introduced yourself by reading a paragraph, which I think in your epilogue, which I think will, will really contextualize this talk, and then we'll dive in from there and see how organically the conversation grows. Great. So welcome. Thanks for having me here. 
Welcome and my pleasure. And can you tell people, just my viewers and listeners, just a little bit about you? So I'm Jason Kander. I'm the former Secretary of State of Missouri. I am a veteran of the war in Afghanistan. I was uh, Army captain when I got out of the Army, but when I went to Afghanistan, I was a lieutenant and an intelligence officer. My job over there was to do anti-corruption and anti-espionage investigations, which really just means it was my job to go out, usually just me and a translator, and figure out which bad guys were pretending to be good guys and take meetings where there was a reasonable fear of being lured into a trap. So dangerous work, which I acknowledge now, I didn't acknowledge for a long time that it was dangerous. Threw myself into politics. I got married before I deployed. I've had a couple of kids since. So I'm, I'm a father. I got two kids, but threw myself into politics after I came back from Afghanistan and partially because I really cared about what I was doing. And I think in retrospect, also partially because that was sort of my way of self-medicating and, you know, the rest of the story is in the book. And then I came here to see you. And that, that's my life story. Wow. That's a, that's the Cliff Notes version. And then we'll dive into some more details. We're going along. But that's incredible. And once again, I just want to honor you for your service and what oh, you've thanks. done and how you've handled things and how you've taken a very, very difficult experience that's not spoken about enough and been so transparent about it to help so many people. So, Jason, I want to dive into your, your great book. There's a paragraph here that I'm going to read and then we'll take it from there. Despite the fact that we have 40 years worth of psychological research on the prevalence of PTSD in soldiers, that's all anyone in the US military gets at the end of their service is a firm handshake and a goodbye. There was no period of decompression, reorientation or reintegration. Now I can tell you as a researcher in this field for nearly 38 years and practicing clinically for 25, that is not the way to handle the extreme yeah. trauma that you've been through. It's like the Tur worst thing. <laughs> and you, dis you, you really describe that in this book. So, Jason, let's start at the beginning. And then at the end, I want to come to some lessons that you wish you have in your the, the stuff I wish someone had told me. I, I love that title. And I thought that would be a really great way. Either we can segue straight into that or at the end, however you feel comfortable sharing your sure. story. Yeah, I can jump off from where you started there. I mean, the thing about the military is there is this sort of necessary form of brainwashing. That's how I re uh, refer to it. And I don't really fault the, the military for it. And, and the way it works is, is that from the moment you get into at least, you know, the army, I can speak for the army. That was my experience. The way, as soon as you get there, the message that you receive either in basic training from your drill instructors or just eventually it's just sort of in the air everywhere culturally is that what you're doing is no big deal, that other people have it much worse, right? And the reason I say that that is a necessary form of indoctrination is because if I didn't believe that, it would have been very difficult for me to do my job, right? If, if I was thinking about the fact that it was very dangerous for me to go into these meetings with people who you know, had allegiances at times to the Taliban or Al-Qaeda and to have meetings with them, get information from them, and know that there was nobody coming to back me up because nobody knew where I was if things went badly. For me to do that, like I've got to look at it and go, I'm just a guy going to meetings. Like this isn't combat, right? That's what I've got to believe. Mm -hmm. Just like for, you know, a soldier that's conducting, you know, patrols and getting shot at every day, they've got to believe like this is no big deal compared to my buddy who got shot, compared to my buddy from some other war or some other, you know, unit, a, a few, like a, a base over or whatever. So it is an important armor mentally that they equip us with for us to be able to do our job. I don't fault the military for that. The issue is, is that when you get out of the military or when you come home from a deployment, there really isn't a process for flipping that switch off. And 
And so I think the way that this gets interpreted a lot of the time is when, you know, you often hear people say this message of it's not weak to get help. It's, it's an act of strength. I actually think we're at the point where very few combat veterans or veterans in general feel that it's weakness to get help. Like, I actually think that we have overwhelmingly received that message. That's good. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's more often the case that we're going, we're saying what I was saying to myself for a decade, which is, yeah, no, it's, it's the right thing to do to get help. It's just that I have it on good authority that what I did was no big deal. So that help is not for me. This can't be connected mm. to my service because I, I came to the understanding that what happened to me is nothing compared to what happened to other people. Oh, wow. So if, if I go get help, isn't that sort of me dishonoring people who I think did more than me, right? Gosh, it's like totally distorted, isn't it? Yeah. And, and that's the problem with not turning that off, not sitting people down when they leave the military and being like, okay, actually, that was kind of a big deal, <laughs> you know? So Exactly. Yeah, that's really important. So there's a massive disconnect between how they try to prepare you and put this armor on you to try and sort of rewire your networks of your brain through your mind into being able to do what you've got to do, which is so terribly frightening and challenging and so on versus, okay, well, we finished now, let's unpack this mm -hmm. and say, all right, you're entitled to actually process those feelings that are associated with those very challenging circumstances. And yes, other people may have had it badly as well or worse, but actually your experience is very valid. And that's kind of what's, what I'm hearing you say is that you've kind of always got to say, oh, well, someone else was worse off, so therefore I just got to kind of pull it together. Meanwhile, mm -hmm. you needed to hear something like, hey, this is a valid experience. Yes, other people have had bad things, but your experiences, you can't really compare. You all have had terrible experiences and no one's an expert on your experience except you. And just by the mere fact that you've gone through it, you're entitled to process it. So something yep. like that is where the disconnect seems to be, if I'm hearing you correctly. Yeah, and I don't think this is unique to the military. I think the military has kind of perfected it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think that, you know, all throughout society, there are people, I mean, I, I see it because so many people talk to me about, trauma and their mental health because I've spoken about it and I've written about it. So I, I have a lot of people come up to me and they're about to tell me something and they'll preface it with, I was in the military or I didn't go to war or, and I'm always like, I don't know what that has to do with anything. Like my brain doesn't know what your brain experienced. So one has nothing to do with the other. I do Very think good. in the military, one of the reasons that it's so much more pronounced is in the military, we rank everything, right? Like that's the whole system. Like, you know, you, what rank you are determines everything, including how you will be addressed and how you address other people. It, it determines your career. There are rating systems within the rankings. There, there's all this. And so the military is really built around a system of, you know, merit of things, including combat. Like how much did you see? Like every, you know, the uniform itself mm -hmm. is built around this. And so when you add that on top of it, there's definitely an innate sense by the time you're coming home from a deployment or getting out of the service to an innate sort of instinct to rank your own experience against other people's and then determine whether you need help or should need help based on other people's experience. When in reality, they just got nothing to do with each other. That's a very, very good point. And your experience is going to affect how you function and how you show up. So it's really mm -hmm. important for you to be able to show up as a father, husband, your work you do, et cetera, to sort that out within yourself. Otherwise, it impacts everyone else around you. So yeah. that's, that's a really interesting, almost like a, a you know, it's a, it's a conflict. It's a cognitive dissonance where mm -hmm. the one thing is strengthening you, but actually you need to be able to deal with your own thing. 
So yeah, you yeah. so you you really are hitting on something that's extremely relevant because I think we you know we all know we need to process our stuff, but our society and our environments and our experiences are telling us otherwise. It's conflicting mm-hmm. information. Like you, you know, there's someone worse off than you. You know, I I'm not even sure we all know we need to process our stuff. Like I I didn't know that for a very long time. Right? I felt like. I had, I, I had these problems, you know, I, I, I didn't sleep. I got these nightmares. I, you know, I knew I had a lot of issues, but I, it wasn't until I started to go to therapy that I really came to understand that the issue was that I wasn't processing stuff. In fact, for example, for several years, I thought that the reason I was having night terrors was I, I would always find something that I could relate it to that I experienced during the day. Cause I was thinking about the war all the time anyway. Right. So it was always a way for me to tell myself, Oh, I saw that article about Afghanistan or I saw the movie trailer about somebody who gets kidnapped because as an intelligence officer, that was one of the you know things that I was worried about all the time. So I could say to myself, well, that's why I had that night terror. Mm. But the truth was I was having night terrors every night. Right. And so what I learned in therapy was it was the opposite. So before therapy, what I had decided was, well, I got to avoid that kind of stuff, right? Like I'm not going to watch war movies. I'm not going to. And then when I got into therapy, that's when I learned, oh no, no, you're not processing your stuff. So you're, you, you've got your guard up all day long. You're playing whack-a-mole with these emotions and these memories. And then you go to sleep and your mind is like, Hey, you, you're not defending yourself anymore. We are going to deal with this in your subconscious. And it was only when I started talking about that stuff, started actually letting myself read about Afghanistan, watch, you know, war movies, which I wanted to do anyway. I liked the military and, and when, you know, it wasn't always easy to do, but when I did it, I found that I was sleeping much better. You said so many very, very important things there and that are so extremely relevant. And I can give you a little bit of science behind it, but essentially yeah. the concept of what you said so interesting is that you didn't realize you had to process and if we look at what's happened over the past 40 years, 40, 60 to, 40 to 60 years, 40 to 60 years ago, it was basically part of our sort of human approach is that if you go through, we, we accept that if people are battling with something, it's because they've gone through something. So we need to give people support to help them process. Then we entered the, the biomedical neuroreductionistic regime or era, which is what you pretty much have grown up in and experienced, your military, had your military experience, which actually which said, no, it's all biological. It's in your brain and, you know, you get through life if you have any kind of reaction, you've got a mental illness. So here mm. you go to war, you put your life on the line, you're in danger daily. That is incredibly stressful on you as a person. And you get out and you get told you've got a mental disease. In other words, something wrong with your brain. There's nothing wrong with your brain. Your brain processes it and it's been damaged as a result, but it can heal. What you had was that you had an adverse ex- experience and you were reacting as a normal human to adverse experiences. Yeah. So if we don't process it, it's that volcano that's dormant that it's going to erupt. And you're quite correct. Our non-conscious mind, which is something you may not have heard of, it's, bet- it's below the subconscious. It's the 24-7 operating system that is, it's not even, it's beyond that. It's this, this quantum system that is brilliant. It's where every experience you have is stored. And that is driving us. And the good and the bad is there. But that's your part of your mind. And your mind drives your brain. And the point of this is that every experience you ever had growing up and in the military and everything else is stored there and your non-conscious mind is your best friend searching for the things that are impacting your behavior in a negative way to make you aware of them so that you can deal with them because mm. they don't just go away they are physical changes in your brain and body and mind and they need to be deconstructed the story never goes away you'll always be able to tell your story aka your book 
and your stories that you share, but you've reconstructed them now. You've changed what they look like inside of you, so they're changing how your future plays out. But if we don't deal with those, they don't change structure. They get bigger and bigger, and they impact how we function, which is essentially when PTSD mm-hmm. overcomes us. Mm-hmm. So That's really you, interesting. Yeah, so, so when, you, when you go to sleep at night, your non-conscious is doing this whole search across all, imagine a huge forest and there's these toxic mm-hmm. trees and the really big one, there's Afghanistan and the experiences and it's a whole cluster. And that's impacting your neurobiology, your, down to your soul division, everything about you as a person. So your non-conscious mind starts making you aware of those. And that's what's mm-hmm. coming up in our nightmares and our night terrors and unprocessed, mm-hmm. quite correctly, you said, that is the undealt with stuff. But they're actually, they're actually signals coming from the non-conscious through the subconscious. So the subconscious mm. filters them. Otherwise, we get bombarded and it's very overwhelming. And so that's basically what happens. And we wake that, up and our conscious, yeah, and our conscious mind's trying to make sense of those. So that's where it, these volcanoes will erupt. And that's what generally happens when we don't process our stuff. Mm. But this messaging has changed. That was, this is basically the science I'm telling you. It's accurate yeah. science. But it changed and shifted. And it was all about, okay, there's stuff that's there, but it's the brain disease emphasis. There's the diagnosis yeah. emphasis. The cause being the brain disease. The cause was not a brain disease. The cause was your experience in, in Afghanistan. Right. Doing what you were doing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, you can call it PTSD, but it's just trauma. I mean, it's, it's, what, it's, it's what happened. Yeah. It's your experiences. It's the adverse experiences. But you had the messaging layered on that in order for me to cope, I have to just see it's, someone's got it worse. And yeah. when I come back, I'm a military person. I must just have it all together. I must have my act together. I'm trained. I should just, you know, cope kind mm-hmm. of thing. And that doesn't work like that because every single one of those experiences, like an exploding volcano, they're dormant for a time and then they just do explode in your life, which is what yeah. we see in every well, And the, the volcano analogy is a good one because I think the common misconception, including the one I had, was that, you know, if enough time goes by, you'll be all right. But it's quite the opposite, right? It's, it's that it doesn't age well. It, it just gets worse and worse and worse, which is why I compare it to a physical injury, right? If you, yeah. like if you break your arm and then you're like, yeah, but I know a guy with no arm, so I'm going to ignore my broken arm. Like your arm, your broken arm is going to get worse and worse. And eventually you're not going to be able to use your arm. Exactly. And so it's same sort of deal. It's the same sort of deal. We have to deal with our stuff and it's really hard to get to that point. And I think there's so much, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's so much about being in the military. That's all. And our just society, men, you know, you just, you mm-hmm. talk about this a bit in your book too about, oh, we've got to be strong and it's weak to be emotional and talk, you know, I think Mm -hmm. we're getting a bit better in our society. Now men Mm -hmm. can be who they are. You know, it's okay to have emotions. You can't avoid an emotion. It's who you are as a human. So you you handle that so well. I actually think, I think that that's right. But one of the things that worries me is I feel like it is becoming obviously much more acceptable in our society for people like me to say, I have trauma, I I have PTSD. Like people are like, okay, we, we give you license. You were in the military, but you know, somebody who had a car accident or a divorce or lost a loved one, the society is much less accepting of the idea that they have trauma and that they need to, to deal with it. And, uh, and that worries me a lot because, you know, I appreciate that people often give me a lot of credit for talking about this publicly and I give myself some credit for it, but I also recognize that it is a little easier for me as a veteran than it is for somebody who didn't serve, but might be having a lot of the same symptoms from a different, but just as important trauma. That is an incredibly important point that you've raised, and you are so correct. It is. It has shifted. It's gone from don't talk about it to talk about it, but talking about it, as you say, then you compare and say, is this worse than the other? Meanwhile, everyone's trauma is unique to them. 
mm-hmm. all trauma, whether it's whatever level it's on, needs to be dealt with. Whatever experience you have needs yeah. to be dealt with. And and there's also a really common misconception or a stigma, I guess, that that somehow whatever trauma you had, that it can be alleviated by other things in your life that are like, you know, viewed as good. So an example I think of is, I think it was last summer when the U S women's Olympic Olympic team there, like Simone Biles, you know, mm, talked mm. about how she, she, she didn't feel she could compete because she was having mental health issues and, mm-hmm. you know, which made a lot of sense to me. Like she's yeah. 40 feet in the air spinning. Like if, if her head's not in it, like she's going to get hurt. Exactly. But I, I remember being at the barbershop by my house and guys are like, Oh, come on. She's got everything. Like she's famous. She's going to have these endorsements. And I was just sitting there thinking like, you know, get it like that has nothing to do with it. So on top of, you know, but mm. had, had Simone Biles, you know, done a tour in Afghanistan and been like, I'm those guys would have been like, yeah, that makes sense. You know, I think they would have said that uh, maybe not, but, but they'd be a lot more likely to. And I don't think that's fair because for one thing, like a lot of those women were sexually assaulted. <laughs> I mean, that that's is huge. obviously traumatic. And, yeah. and so, you know, the fact that she's an incredibly successful gymnast, which I think probably comes with its own <laughs> trauma and, and challenges and difficulties along the road to get there doesn't in any way alleviate what's going on for her. So I think that's the other thing that we need to work on for people is understanding that, you know, like in my case, it's part of why I wrote the book is I wanted people to understand, like you can be pretty much at the top of the political mountaintop in American politics and be, you know, have some level of fame and success and those kind of things. And it, it don't matter. Like your PTSD don't care. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Exactly. That unprocessed volcano is busy erupting in your life, and you yeah. can have all those gymnastics, you know, be the Olympic gymnasts and run for president as rich as what you people expected mm-hmm. you to be doing. Mm-hmm. And yet the volcano is erupting in your life and that overtakes everything until it's been, you've taken the time to find yourself again as a human and, and reconstruct right. that story. You know, the scientific side, yeah. just based on what you've said, the scientific side of the neuroscience and the field, sort of the work that I've done, you, we can never get rid of our story. And I mentioned this, but we can deconstruct and reconstruct. And I think this is a huge part of what you're saying, no matter what, you've gone through. For you, it's that unique experience. And if it's affecting how you're functioning, it's really important that we take the time to work on ourselves and deconstruct and reconstruct and change how it plays out into the future so that you can still watch those war movies. And yes, you'll be affected, but you won't be activated and triggered to the point where you can't function. You will be moved. You'll be emotional. You'll have a deeper understanding than someone who hasn't gone through the actual experience, but you are still able to, you know, that you can still enjoy what you actually have a fascination Mm -hmm. for. And that's the sort of healing process. 
Well, again, you know, that's what I always compare that to the physical injury, right? So for me, like, you know, you read the books that you know that when I went into the army, I had to get my knee repaired. I had to get a surgical repair on my knee and then go go through physical therapy in order to go into the army. Well, I can still like, like I play competitive adult baseball now, you know, I play on an amateur baseball team and I'm still pretty fast. Like my knee hurts. I have to ice my knee. I have to wear a brace, but I, I play a, uh, you know, I play a position where I have to be able to run fast and I vote. So it doesn't disrupt my life because I manage it. Right. And so my PTSD is the same way. There's no job that I couldn't do, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it effectively if I don't do the things that I need to do to manage my trauma and make sure that, you know, it's not disrupting my life. That is brilliant. You know, one of the things you, you may or may not know that I talk about extensively in my work is mind management. And what I okay. what I do with my like when I practice, I didn't take P. I, okay, so let me put it this way: I believe that you can have your therapy. All these things vitally important, but at the end of the day, Jason, you wake up with yourself at three in the morning. You're mm-hmm. the one watching yeah. that movie and getting triggered. You're the one on the baseball court with a sore knee. You know, it's 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 not. You have to know how to manage your own mind and, and ma- manage and self regulate. And that is something that we actually, as a society, are not teaching enough of. We are mm-hmm. suppressing versus. You know, symptomatically suppressing about this for the biomedical model where, okay, that's the disease and it works for physical stuff, but it wasn't, does not work for mind stuff. Mm-hmm. And we bring our kids up like that. So our children in this generation are growing up also thinking that, oh, I've got an emotion. It's bad. There's something wrong with me. Meanwhile, an emotion is not a bad thing. It's not an illness. It's part of a warning signal, yeah. a cluster that's helping us. So, you mm-hmm. know, what you're saying is, is so true. We have to manage our minds and we, it's hard and it doesn't mean it's going to be a, avatar life, happiness, psychology, and all these things. That's not what we're talking about. It's basically embracing your humanity, the sadness with the good stuff and growing and repairing and managing that. As you say, ice the knee. Uh, You know, a a couple of things that makes me think of is first that I look with my son. uh, One of the advantages I think of my having gone to therapy now is that when he is experiencing an emotion, like for example, I coach his baseball team and he had this incredible game yesterday and he was so high and he was feeling so good. And at the end of the game, he found out who his teacher is going to be this year and he likes the teacher, but all, you know, all the kids on the team go to his school and they're all talking and he realized he's the only kid on the team with this teacher. So none of his friends are going to be in his class. Mm -hmm. And, and so he went from really high to really low and he was, he was teary. He's, he's uh, almost nine. So he was teary about it. And my instinct at first was, and this is what I would have probably done, you know, and stuck with this therapy. Yeah. (laughs) Pre-therapy. But so at first I was like, Hey buddy, we just had a great game. Let's focus. And then I was like, I remembered, I was like, wait a second. He's having an emotional response. It's a completely understandable and normal one. So I just sat down with him and I was like, Hey, this stinks. Like, I hear you. Like, let's, let's feel this for a minute. We, I, we, I asked him, let's talk about your emotions. Let's use words. It's not just sad. You're disappointed. You know, you're nervous about what the year is going to be. You know, we talked about all that stuff. And so one of the great advantages for me of having gone to therapy now is that I have a much larger emotional vocabulary and, and lexicon. And, you know, my parents did a very good job equipping me emotionally with a vocabulary. And I feel like I grew up with sort of a bachelor's and now I have like a PhD in myself or a master's in myself, but I feel like I'm able to possibly equip my son and eventually my daughter, who's very young and my wife and I together, because we both have been through this now with a more rich, like maybe bachelor's plus, you know, so that when they're 
because everybody encounters stuff in life when they encounter stuff, if they can put more specific names to it and they're not afraid of their emotions, I think that's a positive thing. And then on the other part of what you're talking about, about having to, you know, wake up with yourself, I can remember, and, you know, I wrote about this in the book, how I got to a point where I, w- I knew I was doing a lot better. And I remember my therapist told me we were coming toward the end of my therapy regimen. And I was like, I, I don't think so. Like, I, I don't want to stop. Like, this is working. I don't want to stop. Yeah. I, you know, it's, only, it's the first time I felt good in a decade. Like, I don't want to stop coming in here. And I remember him saying like, look, you know, you, you need to be able to take what you've learned here and do this on your own. And he, but he said, he was like, if you need me, I'm here. Like we can do appointments. I still see him every couple of months, you know, but he's like, but we need to move past the weekly part of this so that you go out and employ what you've learned here. And, and, you know, that was really important. I love that. That's excellent. And I love how you gave the example with your, with your son. And I love that your therapist didn't keep you in therapy for a hundred years and actually encourage you to go and do the, cause it's one of the biggest things with therapy is carryover and encourage you to do that. That's really, really a sign of a good therapist who does I, that. I assume that part of the, he is an outstanding therapist. I also yeah. assume that part of the reason that other people maybe are kept in is because, and I, like, I've never been to therapy in private practice, so I don't want to like throw stones, but you know, my guy, he works at the VA and like, he, he doesn't have to think about like making sure he has enough business or anything like that. Right. So like, he believes in the idea that like, I'm going to see you for 12 to 16 weeks. If you need more, we'll do it. But like, that usually is going to be enough. And then we'll see each other when needed so I can get to other patients. Whereas if I would have to guess that if he were in private practice, there would at least be a financial incentive for him to say like, yeah, why don't you keep coming in? You know? So. Well, hopefully the good therapist won't do that. And I can tell you my my therapist, because of the research, the research that I've done on how our brain rewires over, actually rewires over six cycles of 63 days. So you're not going to get over trauma in one day or 21 days. It's multiple cycles of 63 days to actually make the Hmm. mind brain, the neurophysiological, we call psychobiological changes. So with my clients as well, my patients, I would, we would work in cycles of 63 days. Oh, which is a nine-week cycle. And then we would see where you're at. Do we need another one? Do we need to maybe just, you know, once mm-hmm. a month? And it worked. It was amazing because your goal is to get people to be able to mind manage, yeah. not to be able to keep them constantly on the go. An example that you the constantly reliant, your son, fantastic. Look how you applied that, how you sat down, you validated his experience, mm-hmm. you gathered awareness of his emotions, you started reflecting a little bit on on why he's feeling them. You talked about the fact that his friends out there and he's only in heart shifted from happy to sad because of that. You maybe, you know, sort of visualize some things. And then you sort of look back and said, okay, this is what happened. How are we going to manage this? What would be a good way of planning? You did all of that. You know what you did, Jason, without even knowing it? That process mm. you used with your mm-hmm. son is actually called a neurocycle. And it's mm. a system of how you drive your mind, use your mind, your wise mind to manage the messiness of life or messy mind and drive it in the right direction to change the neuroplasticity of your brain in the direction you want it to go. So it's hmm. basically taking, becoming aware and not just being aware, but actually going beyond because you actually helped him to work out a strategy for moving forward. So it's this embrace, process, reconceptualize. And that hmm. process is very systematized because your mind, brain, body is very systematized. So you did something that is actually very scientific. You didn't know. It's called a neurocycle. Hmm. I'll send you a copy of my book, but okay, you're already thanks. doing yeah. that. I appreciate that, but... You know, all I knew to do was like sit in the emotions with him, right? Because that's what my therapist taught me. And then he's the one who, I guess, because it is a system and and it's you know natural to do it. He's the one who, after a minute of that, was sort of like, 
well, I guess here's a couple of good things about it, right? Like, and it, and I, before I went to therapy, I probably would have been like, okay, let's come up with all the reasons this is good. Basically encouraging him to have an argument within his brain, rebut himself, which doesn't work. I think a lot about, you know, Mr. Rogers, I think it was Mr. Rogers who said that, you know, children's feelings are just as valid as ours, if not, Absolutely. and they're, they're felt stronger, if anything. And, and I think about that a lot because, you know, I guess we think that, that kids are more likely to cry when they're upset because they're kids. I actually think probably they're more likely to cry because they don't know not to one. And because I think their, their emotions are really strong. Exactly. You know, you, you're a scientist without even being aware of it. You're, well, you, thanks. you're literally the only person who's ever said that to me. So no, well, <laughs> I am so impressed with what you're saying. It's like spot on. I mean, I've just written a book, which I will definitely send you, but for helping yeah. your kids. And literally the advice that I put in there based on scientific research, I'm a mother of four too, is exactly what you've just mm. said. Your children are so much more insightful than, than we realize. They read our body language. They model yeah. the well-being of your child is based on the well-being of, of, the, of the adult. So by you sitting down and doing what you did, you modeled for him how to actually manage life. And it's okay to be a mess. And it's, you know, the, you can reconceptualize this. So well done, Jason. You were yeah, perfect thanks. spot on there doing science without even. And this is the whole point that I make. This is why I run this podcast and do what I do is because yeah. there's so much inside of us that we just need to know how to untap. So, and on that note, what I want to do is pivot over to, I know people mm -hmm. are really wanting to hear your story. And I just want to quickly read from the back of your book that in 2017, President Obama in his final Oval Office interview was asked, who gave him, I know that you've heard this so many times, no, but I just it. want to, it's beautiful. Who gave him hope for the future of the country? And Jason Kander, aka this incredible man in front of me, viewers, was the first name he mentioned. Suddenly, Jason was a national figure. As observers assumed he was preparing to run for the presidency, Jason announced a bid for the mayor of Kansas City instead and was headed for a landslide victory. But after 11 years battling PTSD from his service in Afghanistan, Jason was seized by depression and suicidal thoughts. He dropped out of the mayor's race and out of public life, and finally he sought help. I just had to read that because it's so incredible. Sure. Can we now just sort of pivot over to, you, you've almost started at the end, which I love, with the, with the life lessons and how you've changed. Mm -hmm. Can we talk a little bit about your story and you know, sure. the details of the book? And, and then we can wrap up with some of those lessons that you, or the, the stuff that you wish you knew, which you said already, but we'll summarize with that. So yeah. the, the, the ball's in your court. Oh, sure. So, sort of my story. The, you know, the book is more or less in three acts, right? I mean, the first act is, you know, me going into the military and going to Afghanistan. And I wanted to keep that relatively short because I didn't want this to be a book that was only read by people who read, you know, political, by people who read military memoirs or, you know, historical books about war. So, you know, the first two chapters, it's me going into the military, me going to Afghanistan and coming home. And then, you know, the bulk of the book is really in the, in the second act, which is my ascendance politically. I went to the, I got elected to the state legislature, got elected statewide, became the first millennial ever elected to statewide office in America, became the secretary of state of Missouri, then ended up running for the United States Senate in a race that nobody really expected me to have any chance in, but came very close to winning, which surprised a lot of people. And in doing so, you know, did it in a way where I, I became, you know, kind of a political celebrity, so to speak. Like a lot of people knew who I was and but I lost. And so I came out of that. And this whole time, by the way, like I'm, you know, dealing with post-traumatic stress, but I didn't know it was post-traumatic stress. So I just thought there's something wrong with me. And like we talked about, I'm comparing it to other people. Mm -hmm. And 
And so I'm having these night terrors. I'm having this sense that I'm in danger all the time. I'm, you know, feeling like self-loathing and guilt, you know, all that kind of thing. But at the same time, one interesting thing about it, I guess, is that while my self-esteem really suffered because I was pretty convinced, which I now know is common to trauma survivors, I was pretty convinced that I was irredeemable. My self-confidence never flagged, which I guess is a, you know, a, a tribute to the work my parents did. Like, I thought I was not a very good guy, but I was convinced I was the most talented politician in America. So I could believe both those things at the same time. Same time. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of using my self-confidence as a salve, I now realize, for my self-esteem. So if I could go on TV and perform well and, you know, there'd be thousands of people saying nice things on social media afterwards. Well, I could kind of use that as a bandaid over the way I felt about myself to try and rebut those, those things I was telling myself about who I was as a person. And so then I just sort of had to keep going is how I thought of it. I had to keep going after one endorphin high or the next go to these peaks and, you know, President Obama had said nice things about me. I ended up being sort of summoned by him and we met and he was encouraging about the idea of me running for president. And the next thing I knew, I was pretty much running for president without saying the words, but everybody knew that's wow. what I was doing. And the whole time I'm getting worse, but it's been so long since I deployed. At that point, it had been nine, 10 years since mm. I deployed. I'm feeling like, you know, I've been this way so long, it, it was kind of hard to remember not feeling that way. And so that made me feel like, well, it can't be because of my service. Like, I just felt like this is just how I am now. Mm. Finally, I just was so exhausted from not sleeping, from being sort of on edge all the time that I just didn't feel I could make the run for president. So I, that's when I decided to run for mayor. You know, generally, if you go from running for uh, president to running for mayor, you should be the front runner. And I was. And that campaign was going extremely well. Like I was going to win, but I was getting worse and I was getting worse faster. Mm. So by October of 2018, that's when I ended up in the suicide hold at the emergency department at the Kansas City VA. So that kind of brings you to the end of the, the second volcano act. exploded. Right. It's sort of like the volcano exploded. For me, it was more like the volcano was slowly like erupting the whole time. And I just got to the point where I was like, mm, too much volcano. Too much I'm, lava. I'm done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and so then I would also like to say for people thinking about buying the book, it's also funny. Like it doesn't sound like yeah. the way I've described it, but no, you know, it's brilliant. It's really here's the book. Yeah, it's it's, we'll it's not a link. hard read as far as that goes. But then the third act is really the book that I wanted to write in the first place, right? I mean, it's I was motivated to write about what therapy was like to try and make it more accessible for people. I was motivated to write about what I had learned in therapy and those life lessons and that sort of thing. But I understood that if anybody, nobody was going to just read about that, that if I was going to do that, I had to tell the story yeah. that's throughout the second act, which, which makes is, it real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, cause I'm sure I'm not the only person with a unacknowledged secret undiagnosed psychological disorder to ever run for president. I am the only person ever to like talk about it. <laughs> and so, so I knew if I could tell that story, a lot of people would read it and they would get to that third act, which is where I you know, got better and, and where I can offer the reader a lot of what I learned. I love it. And Jason, this journey of healing, it's ongoing, isn't it? I mean, this is not, yeah. you haven't made it yet. You still. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you of- make it right. I mean, for one thing, as you alluded to earlier, PTSD, though it is an injury like a physical injury, it is different in that it is based on memories. So the memories are going to be there. So you don't cure it. Right. Whereas like, you know, if I, if I cut my finger, as long as I didn't cut my finger off, like 
it's going to entirely heal. It's going to heal. Mm -hmm. And and so that is a difference. And on top of that, one of the things I I share in that in the last chapter before the epilogue is that you know, just because you dealt with your trauma doesn't mean you're never going to have more trauma. And so there are other things that have happened that I've dealt with since. And so, uh, yeah, it is an ongoing process for sure. It's being, it's, it's like you've humanized your experience. It's almost like the military expects you to almost dehumanizes you in order for you to do what you've got to do. And then it becomes a coping strategy when you leave. Cause you actually mentioned earlier on, as we began the interview, you mentioned, you commented that the political, your political career was you said solve in the second half, but in the beginning you said you used it to sort of almost cope or hide from mm-hmm. facing the issue. And if I listen and hear and read and and you know now know you know about you, the, it's screaming at the core of this whole thing was all these external things were not enough. They were brilliant. Yeah. They were wonderful. You were claimed and honoured and all the rest of it. And you know people knew you and great wife and great kids and just like hey he made it sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But deep down inside that self identity that that's that. Trauma was there and it was blocking. And from a scientific perspective, it literally is changes in, you've got a mind, brain and body. They're three separate, they work together. And the mind creates these gravitational fields. That's what the mind is, it drives the body. Is this very, so you've got these like, instead of waves, it's like erratic. And that goes through the brain and the body affecting how our body actually functions. And it also wires into the brain instead of as a healthy thought. And I've got a little tree over here to show a healthy thought. My other, mm. and I have a wiry looking black one. That shows the toxic ones, but it's packed. I just came back from a conference. But the point that I'm making is that this is what the brain, this is made of proteins and things that, that encompass your child's birth and the, the great conversation you had, the mm-hmm. good stuff, your wife, mm-hmm. et cetera. The toxic things are those experiences, but they look different in the brain and they're damaging and they are distorted proteins. And a thought like this tree is, is a thought, but it's made of memories. And the memories are all the details of each experience that you had. So when you talk about the fact that the PTSD, it's part of your life story, your stories are there, you know, it doesn't heal like the bones or the cut or whatever will heal. Mm-hmm. It actually just changes. And I have a picture that I show people of a tree that is a big, beautiful green on the one side. And it's like all, but deep down inside, there's this little tiny sort of black, ugly looking part, but it's not doing anything to you anymore. So what's happened in, in your situation, what you've gone through is literally you've taken that big black toxic tree, which is a bunch of proteins that are as, as dangerous as the COVID virus. Literally, it's mm-hmm. physical. There's also caused changes in your body, which is... Yeah, I had a bunch goes, of physical problems. There we go. Before and, and, and I'm sure when you recalled, like even watching a movie when you were triggered or something like that, it wasn't just your mind that was, was battling. It was mm. your body physically as well because right. memory stored in every cell. We have 37 mm-hmm. to 100 trillion memories, uh, mm. thoughts inside our cells of the experience. Mm. So point being is that you actually didn't take that, you, you don't ever lose and forget. You just went from this big black tree and it reconstructed and reconceptualized into the green with the story smaller. And mm. that created a level of activating your internal resilience. So as the other things in life came along, you didn't use exactly the same things, but that had created a pattern of resilience. So now you've handled the next thing and the next thing. So my question yeah. after this whole scientific uh, thing sure. is, do you kind of feel that that's happening? Could you visualize this this tree that's only got a teeny little bit of the black now, like little ugly branches, and that as you go through the next, because life happens and bad things happen and mm-hmm. big things and small things and so on, do you feel it like you're different now in how you handle those and how you see those? And can oh. you talk a little bit about that? I'm enormously different now because now I understand that the goal is not to avoid or outrun them, that you, you have to go through it. You have to go to the trauma and you have to process it and, and you 
can't outrun it. Like I spent 10 years trying to outrun it and I was faster than me, right? So the way I think about what the way I used to handle it is I think about it in terms of how I became emotionally numb for all those years, right? Because, mm. you know, I knew I, I had these things that bothered me. I had these memories and thoughts that bothered me. So I would just try and keep my brain busy, right? I would listen mm-hmm. to I would listen to music. I'd just keep working. I would, you know, so it's why it was so difficult for me to be present with my family because mm. I wasn't actively working, right? I was taking care of my son or sitting with my wife. Like it was very, very difficult for me. And those memories and those emotions were unpleasant. And so I, I would numb, I would numb out by, you know, watching TV or, or by going on TV or whatever I was doing. And the thing about that was, is I, I think what I thought I was doing was that I was sort of, you know, numbing out those negative emotions. And I was, but what I didn't realize is my, my body and my brain didn't have the ability to just find the negative emotions and numb those. So as a result, I was numbing and suppressing emotions generally. And so I I got to the point where like, I just couldn't feel anything like the stuff that was good and exciting or joyful that happened. I couldn't couldn't fully Mm. access those emotions. And that I think has a lot to do with how I became depressed. Because if you, Mm. if you know, if you know, joyous or, or happy things are happening around you and you can't feel them, like that's depressing. And very, and so and that's how I think about it is now I try very hard to realize it when I'm numbing myself from bad emotions, because I know that that's going to, that my brain can't just find the bad ones. Right. So I do what very simple thing that my therapist taught me, which he would just say, feel the feelings. So like, I try not to be afraid of feelings anymore. Right? And there's something that I, and I try to be curious about them and just explore them, you know? Beautiful. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. A lot of us will drop anything to go and help someone we care about. We'll go out of our way to treat other people well, but how often do we give ourselves the same treatment? One of my resolutions for 2022 is to treat myself like I would my best friend. And one way I'm going to do this is to spend more time doing the things that make and bring me joy, such as walking my two puppies or reading novels in the bath. Therapy is another great way we can take care of ourselves. Indeed, you don't have to be in a crisis mode to benefit from therapy. Therapy can provide preventative and protective strategies so that when things do get tough, you'll know what to do. It's one of the best gifts you can give yourself. And this month, BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you that you matter just as much as everyone else does. And therapy is a great way to make sure you show up for yourself. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp Online Therapy. Cleaning up the mental mess listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash drleaf. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash drleaf. The link and details will be in the show notes. Because a feeling is actually, even depression, which falls under the category of feelings, emotions, are warning signals. And if you think about what you, when you feel something, have you noticed that there's also the impacts your behaviors, what you say and do, and it impacts mm, you feel it in sure. your body and then your yeah. perspective. Oh, so, yeah. though, so emotions go with behaviors, they go with bodily sensations and they go with perspective. So they're four warning signals that work together. And when you talk about self-regulating or managing your mind, 
that is what you're doing. You're actually noticing mm-hmm. those and then finding what they attach to, the thought and all the memories and all that stuff and kind of going in another direction. I, I often, you know, still have the issue, I'm sure it never goes away, of there are times where I don't realize that I'm, you know, avoiding something. Um, mm. Because, you know, it'll be in the category of something that I don't think should bother me, right? So mm. something will happen at work or whatever, and I'll go, I it's not a big deal, right? I've, I've decided it <laughs> objectively it's not a big deal. So I just go on and then, you know, maybe I'm kind of irritable around the house or my back starts hurting or whatever. And it usually takes exactly. my wife being like, Hey, something is bothering you. And, it, and she has to kind of get me to stop and think about what that is. And oftentimes once I realize what yeah. it is that's bothering me, that oftentimes, sometimes that's all I need. You know, yeah. I don't need to fix what's bothering me. I just need, just to, be need aware. to be aware. Yeah, mm-hmm. you just become aware. And then you can, because you, you, you've trained yourself now through the years of therapy that it's okay to be a mess. And the, and, and the years mm-hmm. of working on, your, on yourself, it's okay to be a mess and you can reconceptualize that mess. And that's the yep. biggest message that I always, that's why I call the podcast Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, is because mm-hmm. that's part of being a human and it's going to happen yeah. the rest of our life, which is amazing. Jason, I'd love to now just kind of summarize everything that we said. And people really need to get this book. It's really, really great. Thank very, you. very helpful. You have a great, in your epilogue, the stuff I wish someone had told me. Could we wrap up by sort of walking sure. through those? Because I think it's a great way to sort yeah, of segue into. Those are my greatest hits. I'm happy Exactly. To, and you, I know them. you love this. This is like your yeah. best life lessons. And it's always so yeah, fascinating. No, it's, it's great. It's always so fascinating for me when I work with, interview people and you know, the work that I've done and working with people that have battled and that kind of thing. And even myself. And is that the lessons we learn, we so one it's so de- desperate to share them, and that's so healthy because it's not about us, it's about us in the world. So you've done mm-hmm. that beautifully in this book. So oh, well thank done. Thank you. Okay, so we're in the epilogue. It's the stuff I wish someone had to, I think this is the epilogue. It's the, uh, stuff, the last chapter before the last the chapter. Yeah. And the first one you say, either you deal with your trauma or your trauma deals with you. Now, I know we've touched briefly, but you're just going to kind of wrap everything up and give us mm-hmm. a nice sort of summary. I think that part has my favorite dumb analogy or I guess metaphor in the book, uh, <laughs> which a couple of editors tried to cut. And I was like, no, 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 we're keeping Good. this. Good. I love which it because I like it. <laughs> yeah. Which is that trauma is not like wine. It doesn't age well. It's more like an avocado. And there's a reason that nobody builds avocado sellers. I actually at one point I love that. said I, I wanted to name the so book much. Avocado Sellers. And my editor was like, there's no way you're going to do that. That um, actually but, would have been really cool. You would have yeah, really had a lot of the wellness like industry after you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. thinking there's some kind of new thing you've invented right. yeah, in the food industry. Everybody be yeah. building avocado sellers. Yeah, to me, I mean, it's just, that's what I learned was that by not dealing with my trauma, it just caught up to me, you know, and you can't, you can't outrun it. You got to turn around, you got to confront it. You got to, you got to go through it. You're not going to be able to get away from it. Exactly. You've got to go through it and reconceptualize. Fantastic. And then the next one, it's not a contest. No, sure. Yeah, that we've talked about that a bit. Just yeah. that, you know, I think that um, part of the reason that we have a tendency to think that we can rank our trauma out of existence is that I think some people, I did this for a long time. I thought that I was doing a healthy thing. I thought I was gaining perspective on my trauma. Mm. Right. So, so I would tell myself that by focusing more on, you know, like a friend who had been shot or, you know, things like that, that I, that would give me perspective over my situation and that that would somehow be healing. But in reality, it, it actually shamed me. It was me shaming myself, which was making wow. things worse. And it was me delaying my opportunity to heal. Wow, that's very powerful. And we live in such a compare and compete society that it's almost yeah. was a natural thing to fall into. Well, that's really important. 
And then you, you also, just, all of these you've discussed, but we're just wrapping it up. Mm. So mental health is a physical health and a physical health is mental health, that whole feedback loop thing. Yeah. I mean, look, before I went to therapy, you know, and I'm a guy who like, you know, I, I was in the army. Like I, I'm a physically capable person generally. I, I, there have been points in my life where I've been in pretty elite physical shape. And yet here I was, and I was still pretty young. I mean, I was, you know, I became secretary of state of Missouri at 31. So like, I, yeah. So, I mean, I was a young guy and yet here I was, I was a statewide elected official known for being the first member of my generation to achieve that office. And I was frequently laying on my back with an ice pack on my lower back because I just was in this constant pain and it made it very difficult for me to exercise. And I, I just thought, honestly, I just thought like I was basically broken and I figured, you know, I was just not going to live very long because my body was so torn up. And what what happened is I went to therapy and some of that back pain, not all of it, but some of it started to alleviate enough that I was able to start exercising more. And then that exercise made my body stronger and it, it strengthened those other muscles. And then back pain largely went away. And then next thing I knew, like I was competing in things. I, I was, you know, in my late thirties, but I got to the level of peak physical fitness I was in when I was in military intelligence school for the army in my, in my, wow. early, in my early twenties. And then, you know, I had, I played baseball when I was younger and I was a pretty decent ball player, but I had this sort of idea for many years, like maybe one day I'll play on a competitive adult baseball team, you know, and like not softball, but like real baseball, but it was always like a pipe dream to me because I was like, I'm way too broken to ever do that. And next thing I knew, like, by going to therapy, by alleviating that stuff, by being able to exercise every day, I was able to do that. And so I've now I'm in my second summer of like playing like 40 baseball games a summer. And it's fantastic. And and so it's which is great for my mental health too, right? So being active and moving, I feel the best on the days when I get out and I move and I do something. Oh, that's fantastic. That's so true. Because we we've got 37 to 100 trillion cells in our brain and our body. And every experience you had built in your brain. Your mind, which is this mm-hmm. field and force, et cetera, that drives us our think, feel, choose thing, and in every cell of your body. So if you think of how many places that memory, it's, it's in triplicate in all these places. That's why you know, there's a lot of research showing, it's different for every person, but there is research showing how we can have trauma stored anywhere in our body. And in, in your case, it was most likely there was a strong component of the trauma in the cells around your back. And mm-hmm. as you started yeah. dealing with stuff, it started, but in the meantime, because it was there for a period of time, our body is a physical thing. So every experience impacts the brain and the body. So they took a little bit of work to get it, you know, the physical side, once you knew the cause, to get the yeah. physical healed again, which you've done. And now look where you've got to, which is amazing. Love it. Yeah, thanks. Love yeah. it. Okay, so then treat yourself as you would a good friend. You know, that's a big lesson I learned about just self-compassion. And a lot of the stuff that I would say to myself, like the self-talk was just really diminishing of me, you know, just that stuff I was feeling like that I didn't have a claim to those emotions. And, and so, as you know, cause you read the book, one of my very close friends, Stephen was a Marine who had also gotten his own version of help. But I, I felt like because my combat experience was different than his, I just decided that mine was not legitimate. His was. And so often oh, wow. what my therapist, Nick would say to me is, I would say something and he would say, what would you say to Steven if he said that to you? And it was usually very different from what I had Mm. just, you know, said to myself. And so he would also sometimes say to me, you know, what would you say to true if he said something like that about himself? And, and so, you know, it, it just taught me 
to kind of give myself a break and to extend some compassion to me. And as a soldier, I think I often felt like if I extended myself that compassion, then that was somehow dishonoring my friends who, you know, I knew who had given more or had been hurt or killed. Mm. And what he taught me was, is that, I mean, you're not doing them any good by being mean to yourself. Like it, it does nothing for them. It's an empty gesture. So you may as well extend yourself some compassion. And that, that's been extremely helpful. Oh, that's amazing. Because also if you're in that state with yourself, you can actually be a better friend anyway. Yeah. Do you know how many people, Jason, have told me this, that are, that are vets? That has, you said this exact same thing that you didn't deserve to have this compassion towards yourself and someone else mm-hmm. was deserving of it. And, you know, that, that guilt. Is, so there's definitely a negative side of that training at the beginning of, yeah. you know, to get you ready for. And that definitely needs to be addressed. I mean, you need to go speak to these, to the military. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. And I also, there's an interesting other element of that, the self shaming part, which I learned in therapy, which is that, you know, for me, I had learned that if I control the situation, I would live through it, right? That's what I learned mm, in my deployment as an intelligence okay. officer. If I knew where all the doors were, if I mm-hmm. you know, had a, a full sense of where everybody's hands were, for it instance, could, and all mm. that kind of thing. So I was constantly searching for the illusion of control. So then what, he, what my therapist, Nick, taught me that was really counterintuitive was he was like, look, when you are angry at your, when you're angry at others or when you are, you know, feel like you're no good, he was like, part of that is you just trying to exercise some illusion of control. He was like, if you can settle on the idea that you're an irredeemable piece of crap and you can feel that shame, then you feel like at least you have control because you feel like you know something. Mm-hmm. He's like, and if you're mad at somebody else or at yourself, it feels like control. And he's like, so it's not just that you feel badly about yourself. It's that there's a part of you that just wants to feel like you're in command again because you understand what's going on. And mm. that makes you think you do. Mm, that's so good. That's really so good. Very, very wise. Okay, then mm-hmm. the last one we've got time for, I think this is the last one. There will always be new challenges and possibly new traumas, which you, as we've already discussed, but very important. Yeah. It's a very important story in the book. And I'll preface it with this, which is that I think one of the things that I was chasing for a long time in my career was this idea of uh, redemption, that I would feel better if I redeemed myself through this, you know, through accomplishment. Right. And, Mm. and I think that the reason we, uh, we get there, at least you know, I can only speak for sort of the American culture on this is that when I think about the movies I grew up on, right. I grew up on, you know, Top Gun, for instance, which yeah. I, I love the Top Gun movies. They're great. Yeah. But like what happens in the Top Gun movies? Like, you know, his best friend is killed and then his boss comes in and is like, you got to get over it. And then a week later he goes and he kills a couple of bad guys. And then the movie ends with like, he throws his best friend's dog tags off the boat and he goes and he gets the girl and he's supposed to be good to go. Right. Well, the so unrealistic. About, totally unrealistic. But but if you think about movies from the 80s and 90s, particularly about men, they really follow that pattern over yeah, and over Yeah, they again, do. Right? You're right. It's, there's, a, there's a part of the American myth is, is singular acts of redemptive heroism. Mm. And so I think for a long time, I was chasing that. And I just, everything was a mirage. You know, I'll win the next office. I'll pass this next law. But it was always a mirage. It was never actual healing because you can't, you can't heal through acts of redemption. You, mm-hmm. you heal by, you know, healing. So with that said, I did have this experience last year and actually over the last year that gave me some small sense, has given me some small sense of closure about my time in Afghanistan, not closure, but 
some small sense of worthiness. Reconceptualization. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. And but at the same time, it dealt me. It, it handed me this brand new trauma. And so what it is is that when the U.S. military pulled out pulled out of Afghanistan, yeah. I had obviously a lot of triggering emotions about that. I I I didn't feel it was the wrong decision, but it was obviously that's feeling it was the right decision and watching it happen on television are two very different things. And Mm -hmm. so at first, you know, I dealt with that as a triggering event, but then Mm -hmm. I got very involved in an effort that I started to, to get a few people who I had served with a few Afghans who I had served with out, including it had been a 20 year war. Now they had families. And so there's about, you know, at first 12 people and then it became about 30 people that it was like me and a couple of buddies were like, we got to get them out. And this was after Mm -hmm. the U S had left. And then, you know, by the time you get to a few months later or a few weeks later, now we've gotten a bunch of other veterans who are involved and they've sent their people that they need to get out their way. So the next thing you know, we are staging a four day fake wedding in Masri Sharif to get these folks out and we, you know, raise a bunch of money, charter a large airplane and have it flown into Masri Sharif and sneak these people basically out of the country. Amazing. Yeah. And so, but the thing was like, old me would have thought, well, that would be healing, right? Because I, yeah, what it actually was, was really traumatic. Now it went on, we got to do, you know, we, we figured out how to do this. So we kept doing it. And at this point, and I started a 501c3 called Afghan Rescue Project. And now we've gotten over 2000 people out. Wow. It's great. But all along the way, you know, having these people relying on you for a ticket out of hell, and you're really their only way out. And they're sending you desperate messages all the time. Mm. You know, it was very traumatic. And going back to the idea of like feeling like it wasn't valid. I went a long time feeling like, well, this isn't a trauma. I'm not even there. Like I'm not in Afghanistan. It's not. And so it took my wife being like, you really need to address this. And I went to see my therapist and he was like, okay, let's do, let's do another round of trauma therapy. Let's deal with this as its own separate trauma. And I just completed Mm -hmm. that about three weeks ago. And it's, it's been very helpful to me. So that's That's why the lesson there is like, there's always going to be new traumas and new challenges and you can't look at it as like, okay, I went through therapy. I'm good to go. Like I went through therapy. I knew how to deal with the triggering part, which is seeing it on the news. But once I got involved in it, it's a very different thing. thing. happened. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's so powerful. What a, what an incredible set of lessons to help people and can be applied as you already said earlier on not just for vets this is for humans yeah (laughs) these are basic principles that you know that are are just so right you know and this is Mm -hmm. what i find so fascinating with interviewing people like yourself is and and the work that i've done is these cons these kind of things constantly come up so they must be real these work this is find yourself process your trauma reach out and help others make sure that you know it's this constant balance between processing your stuff and then taking those lessons out with compassion and kindness for self and compassion and kindness for others. It's just, it's fantastic. Yeah. Jason, I'm, I'm sorry. It's the end of our interview. No, I could okay. talk to you for hours, but I'd love no, to have you, you back again sometime and talk sure. some more. And this is, this is a book that I absolutely recommend that everyone gets their hands on. There's so much to learn. It's a great book. Very, as you said, it's actually really easy to read. It's not a difficult book to read. It's very moving oh, and you. emotional, but it's, it's not a difficult book to read. So thank you for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you, Caroline, for having me. I I really enjoyed it. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com. 
and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.